of the things that uh, I love most about Emmanuel is that uh, this is a very generous congregation. All of you are very generous. Did you know that we have a goal in our church that for every dollar we spend internally on ministries and those kinds of things, we spend a dollar someplace else in the world. We invest a dollar in our community or some other place around the world. And so it's with that in mind that we have the privilege today of introducing some pretty special guests with us from Johnny and Friends. Um, Our own Candy Nixon, I'm going to ask Candy to stand. She is the senior manager of uh, Johnny and Friends Souderton. And so you know, you know Candy. Brian Funk, gentleman in the middle, is the Pennsylvania area director for Johnny and Friends. So welcome, Brian, today. And Chris, I'm going to ask you to stand. Chris Hillesheim is the East Coast Regional Director for Johnny and Friends. So you may have noticed I'm working my way up the organizational ladder. And we are privileged today to welcome the President and COO of Johnny and Friends International. And his name is John Nugent. So welcome, John. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. John spent over 30 years in the software industry serving as Senior Vice President for Oracle, Executive Vice President at SAP, I guess that was in Villanova here, and uh, President and CEO of Serena Software before becoming President of uh, Johnny and Friends. Johnny and Friends is an international ministry founded by Johnny Erickson Todd, dedicated to sharing the hope of the gospel and giving practical help to people affected with disabilities. But what you really need to know about John is that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He passionately loves the Lord, he passionately loves the church, and he is a difference maker in the world. Recently, our Upward Basketball and Cheerleading Ministry completed the season by raising over $6,300 to support Johnny and Friends, as well as being a collection hub for um, 288 wheelchairs, 300 walkers, 153 crutches, and I'm told a whole lot of canes, okay? So it's a joy to welcome John and the Johnny and Friends team with us today, and it's a special joy to hand him the big check of $6,300, okay? So congratulations, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can be seated, except for John. So, Ooh, I have an aversion to green. <laughs> what you need to know about John is from John is John is from Boston. <laughs> Pastor, where's the love? Oh, you're about to receive the love. Okay, I'm just telling you, we're loving on you today. Oh, okay. Boy. So John is from Boston. And he spent about seven years in Villanova area because of his um, uh, job with um, SAP. But today, we are welcoming John Holmes. Okay? So, there it is. So, would you... Is he even going to be starting this year? (laughs) (laughs) If he stays healthy. Okay? So, once again, would you welcome John Nugent as he speaks to us, okay? Thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Well, I do want to say that uh, on behalf of the beloved Bill Belichick, I accept this jersey. 
You know, I've, uh, I flew out from California a couple of days ago, and I've been spending time with the Johnny and Friends Pennsylvania team, and we've been having a wonderful time. There's nothing like getting out and meeting your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm telling you, there's no greater pleasure. There's no greater joy sisters in Christ. And uh, though I can be away from home and I can be away from the lovely Maryland, it's so comforting that I know that I'm going to be with sisters and brothers in Christ Jesus. A whole lot different than my days in business. Traveling is a much easier thing now than it ever was before. We've had various fundraisers in Lancaster. We had fundraiser last night in Soderton. And, uh, you know, when you attend uh, Johnny and Friends event, the one question that you have to be prepared to ask is, how did you become involved in Johnny and Friends? And for me, it was through my wife, Marilyn. The second most important decision that I ever made was to ask the lovely Marilyn to marry me, marry me 27 years ago. And uh, we don't have any children, but we have plenty of nieces and nephews to go ahead and pour our lives into. When Marilyn was 15 years old, her mom suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm, leaving her partially paralyzed on her right side and with broken speech. I think we have a picture of her mom right here. That's the lovely Marilyn back in 2001. At the age of 15, Marilyn became her mother's primary caregiver and took care of her mother for 30 years until she passed away 30 years later. I loved Marilyn's mom. I loved being with that woman. She was so much fun to be with. Anytime we went out to dinner, let's get your mom, take her to dinner. Go to the movies, let's get your mom, take her to the movies. In the face of her physical disabilities, I watched Jerry, Geraldine, do life with such grace and a can-do spirit. She was always a woman full of optimism, and she was a woman that had a smile on her face at all times. We certainly miss her, and she's an inspiration to both Marilyn and I. Then in 1996, Marilyn and I were living in the Boston area, and Johnny was coming to town. She was speaking at a very large evangelical event. And so Marilyn had the idea... Why don't I call Johnny and see if she wants to have lunch with us? I'm like, what? Johnny doesn't know us. She has no idea who we are, sweetheart. She goes, you're just going to call her office, and you're just going to get a polite no. And if you know Marilyn, you'll know this response. She said, well, if that's the worst thing that's going to happen, I might as well give her office a call, and she'll have lunch. Well, to my surprise, but certainly not to Marilyn's surprise, Johnny accepted our invitation to lunch. So we had lunch with Johnny and Ken They told us all about the plight of the disabled around the world and how Johnny and Friends was making a big difference. We were hooked. We were hooked. At that time, Marilyn and I decided that we were going to shift a larger portion of our giving to Johnny and Friends. And through the grace of God, I was asked to take a seat on the Johnny and Friends board later as the board chair. Let me introduce you to another inspiration of mine. This is my sister, Barbara. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. And I was born on my sister, Barbara's first birthday, making us what? Irish twins. Wow, you have a lot of Irish in your congregation. Bet you didn't know that, Pastor. (laughs) But uh, you can see at the age of 52, my sister, Barbara, was diagnosed with MS. By the time she was 55, just a short three years later, she would be in a wheelchair, no use of her arms, no use of her legs, just the ability to swivel her neck just a little bit and to use a few fingers. She does life alternating between a chair and a bed and then back to the chair again. Her dedicated team of caregivers have to feed her, bathe her, and toilet her. 
To watch my sister Barbara do MS, is, it's, really, it's really hard. But she does it, again, with grace, and she does it with courage. I asked my, bar, I asked my sister Barbara one time, how do you handle those really hard, painful days? And she said, John, I just close my eyes, and I imagine myself being cradled in the arms of Jesus, and he's comforting me with his love. That's my sister Barbara. A little bit more on her story later. Now, each time I pack my bags for another trip to serve people affected with disability, I may forget to pack an extra pair of socks, but I'll never forget to pack Marilyn's mom, Jerry, and my sister's Barbara deep, deep within my heart. Now people often ask, how did you go from the corporate life to the ministry life? I was never involved in ministry. I was always a corporate guy. Well, I've been in the software industry, as Pastor was saying, about 35 years, serving in SVP positions with Oracle, executive vice president's positions with SAP, and then on to California to take on a CEO position of Serena Software. Being a successful executive caused me to place my identity in my career. I was all about career. I was all about achieving success. It was all about the job for me. I was suffering from a bad case of big shot-itis. I loved being a big shot, and I loved all the perks that went with being a big shot. My life revolved around my job. I just wanted everything in my life to line up so that I would be free to use all of my time and energies towards achieving success. God could see that I was on the road to ruin. In 2013, I heard God whisper into my spirit, you're done. You're done. Your corporate life is over. Call the headhunters and withdraw your name from all consideration. You're done. For someone who had misplaced his identity in corporate life, this was devastating news to me. I didn't know what to do. I felt less than. And then it was just a few weeks later, I heard Jesus speak into my spirit. I want you to get your computer. And I want you to write down all the thoughts that I'm going to give you. His thoughts filled three pages. Your identity is not in me, but it's in your career. You made an idol out of all the blessings that I gave you. You think you're too big for ministry work. Yeah, God can just hit you right through the heart. Your career is more important than your relationship with your wife. You are concerned, more concerned with the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God. And on and on and on and went. I couldn't believe that God was describing me, but sadly, he was. Jesus, my refiner, was turning up the heat in my life to burn away that corporate ego, that hard edge that I had in my self-centeredness. And now, absent the, absent the demands of corporate life and all the pressures of corporate life, my heart was finally open to the work of the transformational power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Over time, I was no longer interested in being a big shot. I didn't have these great aspirations for achievement any longer. All I wanted to do was to be useful to God. God, how can I be useful to you? Looking back now, I can see that God was preparing me for a new thing, a new thing to eventually become the president of Johnny and Friends. So a few years later, I received a call from Doug Mazza, our then president of Johnny and Friends, and he told me that he wanted to retire. Being the chairman of the board, that's not quite what I wanted to hear. So I tried to convince him otherwise. 
And he said, no, John, there's no need to worry. I already know who God has planned to be the next president of Johnny and Friends. I said, who, Doug, who? He said, you, John, you. And I didn't quite know what to do with this information. I said, Doug, I'm going to have to pray for this. I, I was on a different trajectory. I, I, this, this took me by surprise. So I prayed to God, and it was clear that uh, the Lord was leading me this way. He said, John, why did you think I took you out of your corporate life? Why do you think I put you in the refiner's fire? And it was all clear to me that God wanted to use my corporate skill and now my new transformed heart to serve people affected with disability at Johnny and Friends. Recently, I had the privilege of attending my first Johnny and Friends Wheels for the World event. And it was, up in, it was in India, up in the Nepal border. I mean, this is a place, ladies and gentlemen, that the world has forgotten. The central government, no resources can reach that high in the Nepal border. But God hasn't forgotten this area of the world. Uh, Johnny and friends were working with a local missionary hospital along the border with Nepal. We were there to go ahead and provide wheelchairs, to provide the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to provide Bibles to people affected with disability, those with the disabled and their, and their families. So, with the help of our many donors, this truck, I remember it vividly, this truck rolled into the hospital compound, and it was loaded with Johnny and friends' wheelchairs. We had about 250 wheelchairs roll into that comp- compound. And they were met there by a team of about 15 to 18 Johnny and Friends volunteers. Our trained nurses tended to the wounds and the open sores of people affected with disability. You see, in India, especially in this neck of the woods, if you're disabled, you live life crawling around on the ground. So you constantly have open wounds and open sores that need to be tended to. Our team of physical therapists and occupational therapists evaluated each individual. They went ahead and measured the person's body, pass those measurements on to a wheelchair mechanic to have the chair modified accordingly to ensure a custom fit. Now, this is a picture of a young girl with cerebral palsy who was fitted for a chair. She actually has a twin sister also with cerebral palsy. Now, she only had use of one arm. So what she would do is we got her. First of all, they don't come in like this with smiles on their faces. The moms and dads come in with their heads down, their eyes down. They're nothing but uh, an air of despair around them. Their kids come in with despair as well. We measure them for the chair. We put the little child in the chair, and all of a sudden, she blossoms. A smile comes on her face. She grabbed her. She took her good arm. She grabbed that one wheel and started turning it. And so what would happen? She started going around in a circle. She found a new game she could play. She was so excited and she wouldn't stop laughing. I looked over at her mom and dad and the despair was, and the anguish was off their face and they were smiling and laughing along with their, their daughter. This picture here, the next picture is of a disabled man. This disabled man is being lifted into a chair for the very first time in his life. The, there's one woman there who is a physical therapist. Another one is a wheelchair attendant. You see the woman in the pink mauve sari? That is the gentleman's wife. So she was bending down to take his feet and his legs and lovingly place them in the footrest for the first time. Now, through an interpreter, I asked her, how did you travel to this missionary hospital with a disabled husband? He doesn't have a chair. How did you get him here? She said, through the interpreter, 
oh, I carried him here along with the help of men I recruited along the way, along my 17-mile journey to get here. So now this man is off the ground. This man is sitting upright in a chair. And to be off the ground and be sitting upright in a chair gives you human dignity. This man had dignity for the first time in his life. And this man was not going to have to be carried home by his wife or by others. This man was all excited. He was going to roll home this time. Now, Johnny and friends, we also work with a team of in-country partners. And these in-country partners, we have a few of them in India, they provide a whole array of services to families affected with disability. Let me kind of share how this works. Our in-country partner will get into their jeeps, will go into the villages. A typical village in India is about 1,500 people, and about 10% of those will have some form of a disability. They will seek out in the Hindu village the disabled. They will bring physical therapists and fit them to a chair. Then they will go ahead and teach the moms and dads how to teach them the trade, how they can earn income, because the poorest of the poor are the families affected with disability. So they teach them a trade, how they can raise chickens, how they can raise goats, how the young daughter can learn how to cut hair, how the son, able-bodied son, can make soap so they can earn an income. This did not go unnoticed by the local Hindu priest. The other thing that didn't go unnoticed of this Hindu priest is that why are these Christians dealing with people affected with disability? Don't they know that in India they're called the untouchables? And if you're an untouchable in India, you do not have access to medical care. So if you're disabled in this part of the world, and you're sick, you need medical treatment, you die. But praise God that there are Christian doctors in, the, in this particular hospital and other hospital who are more than glad to go ahead and treat the disabled. So praise God for raising up Christian doctors in these parts of India. So this Hindu priest who happened to have an impaired leg said, would you take me to the hospital to be treated? They took him in to the Jeep. They took him to the hospital, met by a Christian doctor. They fitted the Hindu priest with a brace, and he was able to move around much more pain-free. And then, about a week or so later, the Hindu priest calls the Christians, says, I need you to come to my house. My wife is sick. She's very ill. All of my prayers to the Hindu gods have gone unanswered. Will you come and pray to your Christian God for my wife? So they made their way to the village, opened up the door, went into the house, and on the bed laid the woman. She was in distress. She had a very, very high fever. They went over, they laid hands on her, and they prayed for her. They prayed for Christ to heal her. And Jesus did, in fact, heal her. She immediately got up from her bed. She prepared tea for her husband and for her Hindu guest. The Hindu priest was stunned, stunned. He ended up going outside the house. He called all the villagers together to make a proclamation. He said, The gods, the Hindu gods, they do not have eyes to see. They do not have ears to hear. They do not have mouths to speak. But the Christian God does. So from now on, I am going to be following the Christian God. I will no longer be your Hindu priest. Praise God. Isn't that amazing what God can do? 
You know, at the time I was told this story, this Hindu priest was being discipled to start a Christian home church in his home in his Hindu village. Praise the Lord for that. You know, God is creating this worldwide movement. I've seen it. I've been on several trips around the world. God is creating a worldwide movement of believers who have committed their lives and their resources to ensuring that God's mandate, Luke 14 mandate, will be fulfilled, that his house may be fulfilled, to go into the streets and alleys of the towns and to minister to the blind, the lame, and the poor and compel them to come into his house so his house may be full. This movement will stop at nothing. This movement will bear any burden to ensure that God's house is full. And we are proud at Johnny and Friends to take a leadership position in this great movement. Now, of course, suffering is not exclusive to people affected with disability, nor is it a respecter of person. So when it comes to trials and difficulties, you know, we're all kind of on equal footing. But we are comforted by God's many promises to us when we're suffering, when we face trials and difficulties. God tells us a few things. He tells us not to be surprised when he allows trials, permits trials to come our way. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. If we share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Romans 8, 17. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. The righteous person may have troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Yet, we believe these promises, don't we? We know these are the truths from the scripture. But that doesn't stop us from having a lot of different questions when we do suffer, right? So when difficulty strikes, our natural response is to say, why me, Lord? Why this, Lord? Why now, Lord? What I'd like to be able to take a look at is to look at suffering through the lens of two questions. First, Does our suffering have any purpose? Or are we just doomed to suffer in vain? And second, is God a distant God? Is he indifferent to our suffering? Embracing God's truth aligned with these two questions is going to make all the difference in your life. Let's tackle the first question by looking at what the prophet Malachi has to say. Malachi 3, verses 3 through 4. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the priests and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah in Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. The purpose of the refiner's fire is not to destroy the base metal, but it's to purify the base metal. It's to refine the base metal. The refiner's fire melts down the gold, melts down the silver in order to separate out the impurities and burn those impurities away, thus enhancing the value of the base metal. Jesus is a loving refiner. He's our loving refiner who uses the fire of suffering not to destroy us, but to purify us, to refine us. He uses the fire of suffering to separate out our sins and our self-righteousness to burn them away. Sin and self-righteousness that would otherwise ruin our lives. The scripture tells us that God lovingly oversees the refining process to accomplish his divine purposes. 
And Scripture talks about many divine purposes when we suffer. These are going to be familiar to you. To test and strengthen our faith. To draw us closer to him. To enable us to comfort others in their suffering. To purify our hearts. To perfect the life of Jesus Christ within us. Zechariah prophesied the purpose of the refiner's fire this way. That we might serve him in holiness and in righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Amen. But you know what? Sometimes God doesn't reveal his divine purpose for our suffering. I mean, just ask Job. Other times, we want an immediate answer to divine purpose and meaning of our suffering. Yet God, in his infinite wisdom, delays to allow our faith and our Christ-likeness to grow. And most of the time, the way that God chooses to deal with our lives, to work in our lives, is often different than the way we think he ought to work in our lives. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. God says that his ways will be infinitely more fulfilling, but his ways will include suffering. One person put it this way, He has plans for accomplishing his purposes, which are different from ours. And he secures our own welfare by schemes that cross our own. He disappoints our hopes, foils our expectations, crosses our designs, removes our property or our friends, and thwarts our purposes in life. He leads us in a path which we had not intended. And he secures our ultimate happiness in ways which are contrary to all our design and desires. Isn't this true? In times of suffering, we also often wonder, and it's a natural wonder, it's a natural question, is God even aware of my suffering? So this brings us to our second question. Is God a distant God? Is God indifferent to our suffering? Hebrews 4.15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Amen. God, our God is a God who's touched by our raw feelings of suffering. He sympathizes with our anguish. He sympathizes with our, our, our trials and tribulations. He sees them. He knows them. He's literally saying, I feel your pain. Because God knows in Jesus Christ what it's like to be a human being. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus' full divinity and his full humanity was on display. Since he was fully God, Jesus knew about all the impending circumstances the next day that would befall him. He knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew that he was going to be flogged nearly to the point of death. Jesus knew that his body was going to be beaten so badly that Isaiah Isaiah said that he would be disfigured beyond that of any man and that he would suffer death by crucifixion considered to be the most painful and torturous method of execution. And worst of all, and worst of all, he was going to suffer the wrath of his heavenly Father for our sins. Since Jesus was fully human, he could feel the full weight of his circumstances. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, record Jesus' feeling in his prayers to his Father on the eve of his crucifixion. Jesus begins by telling his disciples that, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. In verse 39, Jesus asks God, 
If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. His anguish was so great that in Luke twenty-two forty-four we read, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Let me pause here and ask a few questions. Has your heart ever been filled with so much sorrow and anguish that you thought you would die? Anybody? Sure. So has Jesus. Have you ever pleaded with God to remove circumstances, dire circumstances in your life, to remove the suffering in your life? Sure, we all have. Jesus has too. Have you ever been in such anguish that you prayed more earnestly? Sure, sure you have. And so has Jesus. Have you ever been in such anguish that the tiny blood vessels in your face ruptured and the blood mingled with the sweat coming down from your forehead? Probably not. Probably not. But Jesus has. Jesus has. So we can be assured that Jesus can relate to the raw feelings of our anguish, our sorrow, and our suffering. Because like us, he too has experienced them. You know, and I don't think Jesus would ask us to suffer and to surrender our will to the Father if he hadn't already done so himself. Suffering is something that we have in common with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, while Jesus' suffering had divine purpose and meaning, what about us mere mortals? Does our suffering have any purpose and meaning? We could certainly take a look at Scripture and maybe look at the life of Job, maybe look at the life of Apostle Paul, maybe the blind man in John 9. But I thought I'd bring it closer to home here and talk a little bit about Johnny Erickson Tata's life and to finish the story of my sister Barbara. When Johnny Erickson Tata was 17 years old, she dived off a platform in the Chesapeake Bay and she broke her neck. The doctors told her that she would never have use of her arms and her legs again and that she was going to have to spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair. She desperately prayed to God to heal her body. Surely, Lord, you don't want me to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. That cannot be the plan for my life. But Jesus did not heal her. She slipped into a deep depression. She tried to figure out ways that she could kill, kill herself. And then, while reading the scriptures one day, she came across the reading in Mark 1, where Jesus spent his time healing the blind, the lame, and the sick. And so we read in that text that until morning, until sunset, Jesus was healing all the sick, all the diseased, all the disabled. And then the next day, the crowd started to gather again. And the disciples were trying to find Jesus. Where is he? Jesus had gone off to a quiet place to pray to his father, the scripture says. When the disciples finally found Jesus, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. Look at the, look at the hills, the disease, the blind, the lame, the sick. They're all gathering to be healed. And Jesus had this incredible response to them. He said, let us go somewhere else. Let us go to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. Wow. The disciples were thinking to themselves, isn't this the most important thing that you could be doing right now, Jesus? Healing people? Jesus had other ideas. He said, no, 
Let's go to a different place so I can preach there also. Jesus was not being indifferent to the cries of the suffering. He healed many people during his times of ministry. But Jesus knew who he was and why he had come. He knew he was the son of God. He was the prophesied Messiah. He was the one who had come to shed his blood on the cross. This is why he had come. As Johnny worked through her paralysis and desire to be healed, she realized that it wasn't about being healed that really mattered. It was really about the healer that mattered and why the healer had come to sanctify her soul, to heal her, to save her. This helped Johnny to see her disability in a whole new light. As Johnny put it, she she said, God permitted what he hated, her spinal cord injury, to accomplish that which he loved, Christ-likeness in her, so that he may be glorified. Johnny's spinal cord injury launched a worldwide ministry. Millions of people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because of her spinal cord injury. Almost 200,000 disabled people have been lifted off the dirt and placed in wheelchairs, given a Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands and thousands and thousands of families, families affected with disability, have had the opportunity to go to family retreats, to be loved and to be cared and to relax. So, if you asked if Johnny Erickson Tata was here, and you asked her, does her disability, does her spinal cord injury have any divine purpose and meaning? What do you think she'd say? Absolutely, yes. I'll close by sharing a little bit about my sister Barbara. You know, I'm one of those kids. I grew up a Catholic kid, and I was taught about souls in purgatory. So when I was a little boy, it was hard for me to go to sleep at night. Because I thought maybe one more Hail Mary will get that person's soul out of purgatory into heaven. So I'd be constantly praying each, each night. So with that, I can remember when I became saved back in 77, I started praying for my family members. So I've been praying for my family members for 30, 35 years. And it's amazing what God has been doing there. But I shared with my sister Barbara the love of Jesus in the gospel of Jesus many, many times, many times. But she didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. And then when her MS struck and the MS was starting to take away her motor skills, I said, Barbara, you do not have the strength to go ahead and endure MS. You're not going to be able to do MS all on your own. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and you need to ask him for the strength to endure each and every day. You need the grace of God. I remember being out on her back deck having this word with her. And I saw a couple of tears come down her eyes. So I thought the Holy Spirit was getting through to her. And then she just kind of quickly gathered herself and said, I don't want to hear it, John. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And then it was uh, about a year later that my 45-year-old brother, Robbie, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Like my sister, Barbara, I had been praying and praying for him, and I have witnessed to him so many, so many times. But like my sister, Barbara, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus either. With only a few weeks to live, my wife, the lovely Marilyn, and I, we got on a plane in San Francisco, and we flew to the Boston area to meet Robbie one last time, see him one last time before he would pass away. So we had been praying prior days before, dear God, open up his heart, prepare his heart for the word. And so I started to share the gospel with him. He's in a hospice bed, very, very weak. 
and I'm sharing the word. I grab his hand. I'm sharing the word of God with him. And I saw something in his eyes that I've never seen before. And it was rage. Rage. He just, in his weakened cancer state, he bellowed, stop it. Stop it. Don't tell me about Jesus anymore. I was so stunned. The, the, the scene was surreal. I couldn't believe it. And so I recoiled. Marilyn and I looked at each other. I, we had a few awkward words with my brother, Robbie. And we just kind of slipped out the front door, knowing this would be the last time we would see my brother alive. We made our way to the car, got in the car, started to put the car in reverse. And my wife said exactly what I was thinking. Well, that's it. Robbie's not going to accept Jesus Christ. He's going to be lost. And right before I could say, you're right, I heard Jesus say in my spirit, have you given up on your brother Robbie? Because I haven't. I said, Marilyn, we need to keep praying for Robbie's salvation. God just told me we've got to keep praying. We've got to keep praying. We get on that flight. We headed back to San Francisco. It was only about seven or eight days later, I'm making my way into the office about 7.15 in the morning, and I receive a call, and it's my sister Barbara, and I'm expecting to hear that Robbie died. She said, uh, John, I've got some news. Robbie just accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I said, I literally lost the strength in my legs, went down to my knees, started to sob. And I said, how could that possibly be? I am the only Christian he knows. How could God possibly save him? I said, how, Barbara, how? She said, I led him to Christ. And I said, you led him to Christ? How could that be? She said, well, I, actually, I wanted to say, that's information I could have used yesterday. But <laughs> she said, well, it was about four months ago, I accepted Jesus into my heart. And uh, now being evangelical, I want to make sure that everything line up. I said, well, how, what did you say to Robbie? Well, she, I told him everything you told me about salvation and faith in Christ and forgiveness of sin. And then I told him, I gave him my personal testimony, how that impacted my heart, and how I gave my life to, to Jesus. And, well, then what did he do? Well, you remember that Bible you gave me? Yes. There was something called a sinner's prayer, something like that in the back. So I said, Robbie, would you like to go through the sinner's prayer with me? She said, Robbie, you need to go through this. You need to know that the last rites you receive from the priest is not going to get you into heaven. It's only through forgiveness of sin, confession and forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ. This is a four-month-old Catholic believer saying this to my brother Robbie. That's going to get you into heaven. Would you like to receive Christ as your Savior? And he, I said, Barbara, what do you... He said, yes. So she took him through the sinner's prayer. And in his very week, he would, he would be dead within about 48 hours from that. In his very, she said, very weak voice, he was able to go ahead and profess faith in Christ. Just amazing. Praise God for that. Praise God. Never, ever, ever give up on a family member. Never give up on that friend that you've been praying for. You never know what God is going to do. Never. God was so gracious in letting my sister Barbara know the purpose for her MS, to humble her. She was a prideful woman. MS humbled that woman to lead her to salvation and then to use her Christian testimony to lead our hard-headed, hard-hearted brother Robbie to Christ. Does my sister Barbara suffer in vain with MS today? No. There's divine purpose and meaning 
in her suffering. As God permits trials and difficulties into our lives, we can rest assured that God is touched with our raw feelings of sorrow and anguish and suffering, and that there is divine purpose and meaning. Remember, none of us ever, ever, ever suffer in vain. Amen? Amen. Thank you. God bless you. So as John has been speaking, I think the Holy Spirit said two things to me. The first is, is that though he's representing Johnny and friends, he's been sharing his own story. I think some of you are tracking with him in his own personal journey. And I think the morning is ripe for some of you to just hear his own heart and his own experience by saying, I'm surrendering my life to Christ. Now, for some of you, that may be a first-time thing. Maybe you're the hard-headed person that somebody's been speaking to you about for a long time. Maybe you're a person that just started attending our church, and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really get this. But there's an inward tug. But there's another surrender, too. And that is some of you have dreams and hopes, and you're a little mad at God because he hasn't been cooperating with you. Maybe... You need to surrender and just say, God, I've been trying to get you on my page. I think today I'm going to get on your page. And I don't even know what that means. But I'm making a flip, a switch in my heart. And I'm surrendering my dreams and my desires to you. Does that make sense? I'm going to give a closing prayer and give you an opportunity to do that. The second thing that God put on my heart And that is, and we hadn't planned on doing this, but I just feel like the Holy Spirit just said this. So there's an offering envelope right in the front uh, in the chair. And if you would like to make a contribution, you can even take this offering envelope next week too and bring it back. But if you'd like to make a contribution to Johnny and friends, just simply write out a check. Remember checks? We used to do that. Right? You guys take cash? Okay, cash or checks. Or if you need to come back next week, that's fine. But just mark an envelope, Johnny and friends, and um, at the end of the service, just come up and lay it on the altar um, or bring it back next week, okay? So would you stand, please? Remember the first word I believe I've heard from the Holy Spirit, and that is surrender. For some of you, this may be just praying a simple prayer. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life, and from this moment on, I'm going to allow you to run my life. Come in. The second part of surrender for some may be I'm going to stop trying to get you on my agenda. I'm laying it down. I will get on your agenda. So let's bow our heads together. Jesus, I think that this has been a clear word that John has spoken today. And thanks for the work of Johnny and friends. We are so appreciative to partner together. Difference makers in the world, that's what you've called us to be for Jesus. So before we go, I think you've been tugging on some people's hearts. If you're here and you need to invite Christ into your life, and for whatever reason you never had before, but you have somebody speaking into you, then just say these words after me. Jesus, um, I do confess that I'm a sinner. 
and I'm laying down my sin right now, and I'm repenting, which means I'm walking away from it. Please come into my life. Please forgive me of every sin I've ever committed. And from this moment on, to the best of my ability, with your help, I will follow you. It's, it's just that simple. You're opening up the door. You don't need to have it all figured out. You just open up the door. And Jesus and his church will help you moving forward. The second prayer is, I think some of us, even though we know Jesus, have our own agenda. And I think God is speaking to some people today saying, yeah, it's time to lay down my agenda and put Christ as a central figure in my life. And if that's you today, you just pray this very simple prayer. Jesus, I lay down my agenda. I surrender my dreams, my goals, my desires to you because they're smaller than yours. And they're better fitting because you know best. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Have a great rest of the week. Remember, if you want to fill out an envelope, that's great. Just bring it up to the altar here. Thank you.